Time circuits on, flux capacitor, fluxing, engine running. All right. Hey, this is Cam Seamer. And you know that new sound you're looking for? It's me, Eric Ambler. And we're going back in time to look at the pop culture of our youth through the lens of adulthood. It's not about good or bad. It's about then and now as we try our best to answer the question, What were we watching? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and let me tell you, once this podcast hits episode 182, you're going to see some serious shit. That's right. It's back to the future. And great Scott, what a guest we have today. Uh, her sweatshirt does not say class of 1984, but she is my sister. Joining us once again, it is Amy Ambler. Hello, everyone. Very excited to be here for this podcast. I am thrilled myself. Uh, this is one we've been talking about a long time, probably since we launched this podcast. I feel like it was on our radar in like 2015 when there was the, you know, right. the anniversary and then the date that they go forward to in the second movie. Sure. But I feel like at that point in the podcast, we were like, we were still doing more like niche stuff. We were kind of more hesitant to do kind of the the big barn burners, the the franchises that everyone knows, but I think we've kind of changed course in this podcast, and it's about damn time that we <laughs> that we do this movie <laughs> precisely. It's pre- or it's precisely on schedule, as Doc yeah. Brown might say. Uh, yeah, you're you're. I remember us having this discussion like, yeah, we're gonna be lost in a sea of Back to the Future podcasts, and we've been doing this so True. long. It's like, nah, we're we're ready. We want to talk about it. We got a lot to say. And especially, you know, with you, Amy, um, this is probably, if I'm not mistaken, your favorite movie of all time. That would be correct. I was uh, thinking about that earlier today that I feel like sometimes in my life I would have answered that question with A League of Their Own, which I also adore. But as I was, you know, preparing for this and just thinking about all the collectibles and, you know, memorabilia type items I have, I thought... Oh, no. I guess this is my favorite movie. It's clear. It lives yeah. it lives along with you. You know, it's just mm-hmm. like a presence. It's a physical presence in your life every day. Yep. I do have the framed uh, movie poster hanging in my apartment. So. so you see it when you wake up every day. Basically. Yes. <laughs> and I get the feeling she passed it down to you, Eric. Oh, yeah. Enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah. It's a big part of uh, my love for this film is directly through, comes directly from Amy and having watched it with her many, many, many times when we were growing up. Mm-hmm. It's part of our vernacular at this point and yeah. to the chagrin of our parents as well. <laughs> <laughs> they just think you're too damn loud. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Mom's like, what the hell is a gigawatt? And what is Back to the Future? Well, I can tell you it was released on July 3rd, 1985, and it was directed by Robert Zemeckis, Fight On, written by Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis, Double Fight On, and (laughs) it stars 
Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson, Crispin Glover, Thomas F. Wilson, James Tolkien, Claudia Wells, and Huey Lewis. Let's not forget. Stars is a bit of a stretch for that, but... Well, the the, con- the soundtrack contributions are also very Fair. important, you know. It's him you hear right at the beginning of the movie. But, you know, we'll get into all of that as we go along. But first, we have to set our watches. We have to synchronize the time inside our heads and take a trip back to the cinema or to our couches when we first saw Back to the Future. And Cam, will you please switch on the time circuits and remind us what goes on in that distant past of 1985? All right, so it's 1985. Teenager Marty McFly just happens to be friends with an old scientist named Doc Brown who has invented a time machine out of a DeLorean. While testing the machine with Marty, Doc is tracked down and gunned down by some Libyan terrorists he had stolen some plutonium from to power the time machine. In the chaos, Marty escapes in the DeLorean, speeding up to 88 miles per hour, which sends him back in time to 1955. Marty wanders around the 50s version of his hometown, Hill Valley, runs into teenage versions of his parents, George and Lorraine, and accidentally intervenes with the meet-cute that led to their dating. Carrying a photo of himself and his siblings, Marty notices that his siblings are gradually disappearing, a sign that he's in danger of writing himself out of existence by tampering with the past. So he sets out to correct the time paradox and make sure his parents end up together with the help of a younger Doc Brown. Uh, This is complicated when Marty awkwardly becomes the object of his own mother's affection and stirs up trouble with his father's bully Biff. It culminates in the school dance where George McFly, having gained new confidence with the help of Marty, saves Lorraine from Biff's aggressive advances, but it's not over until they kiss on the dance floor. And since Marty's shenanigans have injured the band's guitarist, he's forced to take over, where he plays Chuck Berry's Johnny B. Good to a mystified crowd who isn't ready for that kind of music yet. But his parents do kiss, and the photo of the siblings is restored. Marty then meets back up with Doc to send the DeLorean back to the 80s, but without any plutonium to power it, they have to harness a bolt of lightning from an upcoming storm, timing it perfectly. They manage to just barely do so, but not before Marty gives Doc a letter warning of his future death at the hands of the Libyans. Doc tears the letter up, afraid of the ramifications of knowing the future, so Marty instead sets the coordinates to 10 minutes before the shooting so he can go back and warn uh, Doc and save him. Marty arrives back in the 80s, but still too late as he watches Doc get shot all over again. However, it turns out Doc is wearing a bulletproof vest, having taped the letter back together out of curiosity. Marty returns home and, due to his temporal interference, finds his life slightly improved. His car is upgraded, his house is nicer, his parents are happier, more successful, and Biff is now a subservient employee to the McFly family. Suddenly, a now-flying DeLorean appears, and it's Doc, telling Marty and his girlfriend Jennifer that they have to return with him to the future to save their kids from a terrible fate. They fly into the camera, roll credits, cue Huey Lewis. Gotta get back in time. (laughs) Oh my god. Yes, a very familiar story, I'm sure, to to many of us. Tale as old as time. (laughs) Boy meets girl, they have a son, son goes back in time, son meets girl. Mom falls for son. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, there's also a mad scientist in a time machine. So it's... <laughs> what an imagination, can I tell you? Now, that's a lot to hang on. 
hang on kids and families, <laughs> which, you know, I feel like a lot of people are very young when they first see this movie. It's like somehow become appropriate for family viewing uh, over the years. But I'm curious to know, you know, to pinpoint the exact moment on the space time continuum when this film came into our lives. So uh, let's start with Amy. Do you remember the first time that you saw Back to the Future? I sure do. It was not in theaters as I was only uh, two years old at the time that it came out. And I don't think my parents were taking me to see this at two years old. <laughs> my guess is that I was around eight or nine. But I do remember distinctly that my best friend uh, Lynn was sleeping over and we were looking for a movie option to watch from our VHS collection. And I think, I suspect we were looking for something beyond our usual, you know, kind of little kid stuff. Because when you get to that eight, nine, you're like, eh, I've, you know, I've seen all this. i watching something more grown up. And I remember our mother saying, you know, and for some reason, because they were not, it's not like they, you know, had a lot of movies on VHS, rewatched a lot of movies, but for some reason they owned Back to the Future on VHS. And it was there, and I remember mom saying, you know, yeah, that's a fun, you know, fun movie. You guys should try that. Uh, so we did, we watched it, and I remember just immediately loving it and being blown away and thinking it was awesome. And, you know, it kind of became like, you know, our one of our things together, you know, that you have with friends that are connection. And um, shortly after that, she gave me a keychain, Back to the Future keychain, that I still have there carried around with me to this I'll day. I'll have to get a picture of that for the, for the social media <laughs> outlets. Sure. So, yeah, that was the very first time I saw it, and I just was immediately drawn to it. And then, of course, you know, numerous times over the years on VHS and DVD. And I did actually get to see it on the big screen in 2010 when it was the 25th anniversary. They did like one of those um, one weekend only, you know, or special showings in theaters. So I went and there was a DeLorean replica outside. People got dressed up and it was awesome. It was awesome to, you know, get to see it on the big screen because there's just sort of bad luck that it's, you know, your favorite movie and, you know, came out when you were too little to, to see it. So to get that opportunity was was really great. That's pretty cool. I, I think that's still something I have not achieved as seeing Back to the Future on a big screen. I'm trying to remember if I had an opportunity in college, like, because I took a sci-fi class and then I sat in on the Spielberg class. And I don't know if this would have been something that they would have shown in, in Spielberg since he didn't direct it, but he is a producer. Yeah, he was involved. I feel like I might have seen it in college, but I can't say for sure. And I probably would have remembered if I got the opportunity. Yeah, so. exactly. Probably not. Exactly. Because <laughs> I remember seeing, I know what you're saying, Cam, and I remember seeing stuff like even, even at the little UV theater when they used to run midnight movies there. They would show older stuff. Like, I remember seeing, like, Raiders of the Lost Ark there, which I had also never seen on a big screen. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, my mind, I would have thought of this one as a milestone, and I would remember yeah. it. But it's interesting, you know, Amy, you talk about us having that VHS tape. Yeah, it's still a mystery. I, I should have asked mom and dad before we did this, like, where did you get that tape? <laughs> like, <laughs> did you just, did dad just, you know, see it one day and buy it? Like, the timing is interesting, too. If you were, like, eight or nine, it was, like, right after the sequels came out. So it was probably mm -hmm. also, like, in the zeitgeist again, and people were thinking mm -hmm. about it. And true. Maybe that's There's also, the animated series was around then, too. That's true. So, you know, there's, I guess there's just more opportunities for it to be around and like in someone's, in their face and being like, oh yeah, <laughs> it's like as a reminder, but that's the same tape. I'm sure I saw it for the first time. And I know I watched it with 
you and probably mom and or dad. God, I must have been six years old or very, very young. And I do remember <laughs> it had mom had to be with us because I do remember Marty when Marty says, holy shit. Like the first time in the parking lot, uh, I, I looked over at mom and she just had a big frown on her face. <laughs> <laughs> Especially, I think later, a couple months later, I just like repeated. I didn't know what he said. I thought he said, holy shed, like, you know, a place where you keep your lawn equipment. So, I, <laughs> Or where you keep your door. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I think I just said that as, you know, ran as a, you know, little kid randomly saying things. I said, holy shed. And she's like, went, whoa, uh-oh. <laughs> this movie's a bad influence. Yeah. I mean, I have a distinct feeling that she did not remember, you know, all the details when she said, oh, yeah, that's like a fun mm-hmm. adventure movie for you kids to watch. I think I also thought he said shed because that's like in that scene, like later on the Libyans crash into that photo, mm. photo, uh, kiosk, <laughs> mm. which kind of looks like a shed. So I thought, Oh, maybe he's referring <laughs> to that. I didn't know the word S H I T at that point. You're about to see some serious shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Cam? First timer. Well, I, I mentioned the animated series. I remember catching that on TV and like getting the happy meal toys for the animated series and kind of knowing about back to the future, around the same time. So I feel like that's around when I encountered it. You know, I think the the show came out in 91 and ran for a couple years. So was, yeah, 91 to like 92 or three is probably when I encountered it age five, let's say. Th- there are certain movies like these that, you know, predate my existence. And I consider them just like these found artifacts that have always been there. Mm-hmm. You know, they've always existed. They've always just been these like seminal works uh we did not own it on vhs uh i actually didn't own them until they came out on dvd when i was in high school but i still loved them and like i have fond memories as a kid of like i can talk more about them and when we do a part two episode because i remember (laughs) like pretending to have like a hoverboard and stuff like that (laughs) but uh yeah they they just like captured my imagination and they were always these these legendary movies that Mm -hmm. i would catch here and there like see at friends houses or rent you know go to Blockbuster and rent the trilogy or whatever until until I finally got copies of my own. But yeah, they were just uh the class. So yeah. <laughs> Found artifact is a good way. Yeah, it's just like it's something like Star Wars or something. Yeah, that's always been around. Yeah. Like it, it's yeah always been sort I've sort of always been aware of it. Also, you know, you bring up something that, you know, in preparing for this episode was kind of a challenge it's like we're just talking about one slice of this like larger story which is very well written you know to integrate all these uh all three movies they all feel of a piece and there's just some something like like your your memories of it you know especially since we all we became aware of these movies after they were released the whole trilogy had already been over it's hard not to think of it as one big thing right yeah i mean i feel pretty confident that I hadn't seen it for the first time until after the sequels were released because I would have wanted to go see them in, you know, in theaters Mm -hmm. if Mm -hmm. that opportunity had been available. So, yeah. So I think it was all, all done already. And then it was like this amazing thing that we discovered. You mean there's more of of these? (laughs) (laughs) I almost want to say that there's probably some promotion at a at a fast food restaurant or something you know how they would sell vhs tapes like you buy a hap or a meal and you spend an extra six dollars yeah. at pizza hut and get yourself a tape yeah it totally seems like a pizza hut thing, <laughs> i was about to say <laughs> this could be could be 
Um, I mean, I just know about the animated series Happy Meal. Oh yeah, and maybe maybe that was enough to like, you know, respark the interest. Well, we had we had franchise. some of those toys. Oh, I have them. <laughs> yeah. They're on my knickknack shelf right now. Nice. <laughs> I had the one where it's like the train with the dog mm-hmm. sitting in it. And then there's Doc in the DeLorean and Marty on the hoverboard. Oh, I have Marty on the hoverboard, too. I, I used to have him. That giant cloud underneath him. Mm-hmm. I always yeah. thought that was kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> He's flying. He is flying. But not in this movie. He still has to invent the skateboard in this film. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so where do we start? How do we start this conversation? Like, There's just so much. Well, it's funny that Eric mentioned you know, kind of noticing the word shit because (laughs) I wrote that down in my notes that I had the same sort of reaction. Like, what? I'm being allowed to watch a movie with curse words? Like, this is major. So, um, you know, it's sort of this symbol of, like, you're kind of starting to grow up, but the silly things are still funny. Like, you think it's funny that they're saying curse words, and then Mm -hmm. the... The underwear scene is funny because they're talking about underwear, <laughs> you know, and uh, and Biff gets covered in poop and it's just like <laughs> there's a lot of good slapstick, too. Yeah. Michael J. Fox falls down a lot in this movie. He does. <laughs> I love it. One that really hit me in the recent rewatches is uh, after he crashes into the Peabody's barn and like they're scared off at first. Well, he falls down there, too. He's getting yeah, out of the DeLorean. Uh-huh. But right after, he's just yeah. like, uh, sorry about your barn. And then yeah. they, they shoot at him and he falls over again. Yep. <laughs> A pratfall genius. He falls over when he's trying to put his pants back on in that underwear scene. That's probably and... the best one. Like, the timing of that is so <laughs> precise. God, it's my mother. And, like, she runs, slams the door, pants fly out of frame, and he's, like, struggles to put them on, just boom, face plant. Oh, that scene's so amazing. <laughs> I love Leah Thompson's performance in it, uh, how, how thirsty she is for her, her own son. <laughs> Unknowingly, of course. But uh, one of my favorite deliveries is, um, <laughs> it's like, where are my pants? And she's like, oh, they're over there. On my hope chest. <laughs> yeah, she does that like, like uh-huh. pregnant pause and swallows. <laughs> my hope chest. <laughs> yeah. Even the word chest. Yeah. It's, like, it's evocative. You know? Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, Marty knows something's wrong. Something is very wrong. You're so thin. You know, he's just like his exclamation. Yeah. Th- there's just a lot of, yeah, like you're saying, Amy, a lot of silly humor. Like the thing for me throughout all the years is like, I love the performances in this movie the most and I just, want to get out there that i think michael j fox as marty mcfly in this film specifically gives one of the best comedic performances of all time like ever ever there's for me there's no debate and i looked it up he was nominated for the golden globe so that was at least Mm. good but damn he should have won an oscar for this movie (laughs) that's my hot take maybe not so hot well i believe and is it not mind-blowing then that he almost wasn't this character yeah they (laughs) filmed half the damn movie with eric stoltz and then wasn't working and they they worked it out i was watching special features today and bob zemeckis was talking about how like he's a great actor he just didn't have like the comedic timing that they Mm -hmm. were looking for to your point just now michael j fox is just such a comedic force of nature in this movie yeah 
and it, like the the script itself is fundamentally like a comedy. It's got sci-fi elements. Yeah. It's got a little bit of like the teenage stuff going on, but like it's just a funny movie. You know, it it's a yeah. funny adventure. And from what I understand, Eric Stoltz was playing it more straight. Yeah, like he he wasn't mm-hmm. giving giving the comedy beats that they wanted. So some of the special features that I watched since we all since we all did our lots of homework. <laughs> I love it. I'm into it. Bob Gale, the co-writer, he claims that they wanted to cast C. Thomas Howell, if you can believe that, as Marty <laughs> McFly. Like that was their first choice, but like um the head of Universal was like, No, he saw Eric Stoltz's screen test, like, that's the guy. I'm like, okay. And it probably is one of those cases where you know you find the movie as you're making it and you're really like, Oh, this is this needs to be funnier. You know, this is mm-hmm. it should be funnier. I mean, and I have read in the the book that I have that talks about it that they were very interested in Michael J. Fox, and initially when they approached him, he was he was on Family Ties at the time, and they weren't gonna you know let him out of the shooting that to go do the movie, mm-hmm. and so they kind of just moved on. And then when it just wasn't you know coming together the way they envisioned, they said we got to go back to him, we got to work this out, and so they did with the the showrunner for Family Ties. And Michael J. Fox shot part of this movie. He would, like, work at Family Ties all day and then the evening and into the night be shooting this and then sleep for a few hours and then do it all over again. Yeah. like Crazy. And that, like, that grueling schedule is, like, part of my argument that, like, this is, like, one of the great performances. Like, he to, <laughs> to be going through that on, like, two hours of sleep a day and working another yeah. job and, like, completely yeah. nailing this role, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah. It probably helps his performance, like, the reactions to just being in a totally different you know, time period, out of his element, reacting to everything like it's just the craziest thing in the world. Like he was living that. <laughs> yeah, it probably seemed like a dream. Like there's always, yeah. I always love that transition into uh, the 1955 town square when they're playing mm-hmm. Mr. Sandman as if like Marty, mm-hmm. yeah, is like he has to pinch himself, which is yeah. one of the deleted scenes that I watched too. Like he asks the lady to pinch him and she just slaps him instead. <laughs> <laughs> But it's like, yeah, this whole thing is just like a waking dream for him. Mm-hmm. You can't believe yeah. it. And um, Christopher Lloyd, no slouch in the comedy department in this. Yeah. Genius. Yeah. That's another big one. Like to have to have like just one of like the great comedic performances of all time is reason enough for this film to be a classic. But to have two of them. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. I love Christopher Lloyd in this film. How can you not? How can you not love the doc? His line deliveries. Facial expressions. <laughs> I always laugh out loud, like loudly, near the end when he's trying to connect the, the things on the clock tower and it comes apart on the tree or something, and he just sc- screams. <laughs> <laughs> that high-pitched Homer Simpson kind of scream. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of uh, Marv in Home Alone, just like the high-pitched masterclass in high-pitched screaming. <laughs> And he kind of does one of my favorites that where he does that is when they're in the his workshop and he's showing Marty how it's all going to go down and the car the little car catches on fire and he does this mm-hmm. ooh yeah. <laughs> goes into the trash can and the trash he's, like, he's wearing the goggles on his face yeah. too it's just like it's all about like the shape of that his mouth is like ooh, it like becomes an oval yeah yeah what's impressive to me too about what he does is he has to be an exposition machine in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's speaking so fast yeah. and giving so much information, but yeah, he does it in such an entertaining way. 
like yeah. where all the where all the technical the techno babble has become some of the most memorable lines in the trilogy yeah 1.21 yeah. gigawatts <laughs> <laughs> and i always loved the way that he like moves around in the frame like that was you know in the parking lot uh he's describing what he's done you know like einstein has gone back mm. or he's he gone ahead in time while we're still here and like marty's like pacing and in, in the opposite direction that he's going and of course when they're in his house in 1955 and he's like coming up with this plan to send marty back home he does that great like point not quite right at the camera but like right mm-hmm. to the mm. side of the lens we're sending you back to the future <laughs> yeah. He, yeah he breaks the fourth wall to speak the title <laughs> of the film that you're watching <laughs> and it's just so believable and fun he's he's like a cross between a like a mad scientist and like a crazy orchestra conductor just like yeah mm-hmm. he's the one orchestrating all this madness yeah and one of the special features it did say that he he took inspiration from a, a famous composer i i forget who but oh i heard that t- it's the guy that shows up at the beginning of fantasia i think that's um oh okay. that was the reference that i saw hmm. yeah i feel like that was the reference for like the hair well with einstein of course <laughs> and it's funny because in the interviews that i was watching he like wasn't really interested when he first got the script they like he, like landed on his desk and he like put it aside he's like i, I don't care about that i want to do like theater <laughs> you know but he, he 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 seems the most committed in this movie <laughs> yeah he really brings it and i don't know if you guys have ever seen uh the sitcom taxi you know to yes. again continue with the theme of like these sitcom stars that are so funny in this film um mm. you know his character on taxi was just, like spacey like he he has some mm-hmm. similarities to doc but i think um he he like you know is tweaking it a lot with doc brown because this is also, this is also a very smart man but he also does have a few screws loose and i love how yeah. he's mm-hmm. code switching all the time in this movie that like some of my big laughs are like his very academic uh, descriptions of things like when he talks about enchantment under the sea dance like oh look he points to the poster a rhythmic mating ritual <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and he has no idea what a date yeah. is <laughs> like how to describe yeah it's just great scripting great performance and but... at the same time he's also a guy like he he still knows like when to be informal like you're gonna see some serious shit you know like why'd mm. you why'd you build it in the delorean he's like well why not do it in style <laughs> yeah yeah and my favorite at the end when like he shows that he's got the bulletproof vest on and Marty's like, what about the space time continuum? He's like, oh, I thought, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> so while we're on the topic of Doc Brown, I am fascinated by him because like once you've seen the whole movie, he essentially knows the end of the movie mm-hmm. from the very beginning. He lived it 30 years ago. Once we meet him in, 80, in 1985, he has already experienced young Marty coming back in time and sending him to the future. And I feel like that opens so many fascinating questions like does he spend the next 30 years like obsessing over time travel he's like well i know i have to invent it does he feel the pressure to invent it by then like it's just and at the same time there's like there's this thing where he like hits his head shortly before marty meets him and kind of hazily remembers certain things like on that day like he's like oh yeah that is the day i invented time travel i hit my head and does the universe like course correct and make him like conveniently forget Mm mm-hmm about mm. this adventure in the 50s there, there's like a lot of fascinating implications to what doc knows is he friends with marty just because he knows that he's supposed to be friends with him in the future right. yeah <laughs> <laughs> and he encourages it yeah i think that's also part of the appeal of it is you know people love time travel people love mm-hmm. to think about like what are the ramifications of it how does it work i mean it can really mess with your brain to sort of <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. Just sort of be like, wait, because I don't think I've ever watched it thinking that Doc has already known about it. I feel like that's the version we didn't see. Mm-hmm. I don't know, though, like, because from the very beginning, like that first shot where Marty comes into his house and you see all the clocks and you see the clock with it's the safety last reference with the guy hanging from the clock, which Doc mm. probably remembers doing <laughs> when he was... <laughs> 30 years younger. I don't know. I feel like his life has just like been building to this moment of sending Marty back in time. Yeah. And to your point about it kind of being something that messed with his brain and and made him obsessive, you can kind of fill in blanks when there's that slow pan in the opening shot of the newspaper articles about how the Brown mansion is burned down and how like he sold Mm. the estate to raise money. Like this could Mm. be him like over the decades attempting to invent time travel. And, you know, yeah. blowing up his house and, like, spending all his money. <laughs> he even mentions that. Like, it's taken me 30 years of my entire mm-hmm. family fortune to, to build this. Why, why would you keep going? <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of his fortune, like, knowing his journey in the sequels and how he goes even further back in time, like, does Doc ensure that he himself is rich? <laughs> like, yeah. his family is mm. has enough funding? I don't know. Like, it's a, it's a fascinating can of worms that... I love thinking it's about. pretty wild. <laughs> and I think like the other, you know, the other piece to it, like it doesn't come until part two, of course, like when they introduce the concept of like multiverses, essentially. Yeah. And like the yeah. alternate versions of 1985 right. that could exist, you know, and I think that's a part of the discussion here, too. But that's outside of this yeah. movie unfortunately but like how crazy would it be from doc's perspective like he hits his head comes up with the idea of of the flux capacitor and then like that day or a day later you know very shortly after (laughs) a time traveler from the future comes to confirm that he has in fact just invented time travel it's just i don't know it's so cool (laughs) (laughs) i did it i did it i can't believe it it's like and the thing that gets him to believe it is like seeing the car well it's it's marty telling him like you hit your head but then like when he sees the car he's finally like yes i get it (laughs) well doesn't he like draw out the shape of the flux capacitor like isn't that what i think it's when he sees oh yeah looks inside the inside the door and sees the flux capacitor and he's like compares it to his doodle yeah yeah incredible <laughs> I know for a long time, like the the official Back to the Future site had a whole FAQ section about the, you know, the paradoxes and the time travel mm. implications because the Bobs they thought through it, they thought through it all. Mm-hmm. Going back to that, the opening shot, you know, that you were talking about, that is one of my favorite um, <laughs> parts of the movie. Just yeah, incredibly lays out who Doc is without us and the whole movie ever seeing him. <laughs> You know, and um, it's one shot. Mm -hmm. I think I read that it ends up being slightly in the final version. There is a edit with like a close up of the dog dish. But when they shot it, Mm -hmm. it was one camera movement for that whole like two and a half minute bit. With all those gimmicks going off, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Eric, we talk a lot about like Rube Goldberg machines in like a lot of 90s movies do you, do you feel like this is the the seminal like do you think does it all come back to <laughs> back to the future is like yeah does it, did this inspire all the rube goldberg sequences in uh, maybe movies? yeah i know it i know it's like <laughs> where i was first captivated by it because i think because yeah. and the ticking of the clocks really enhances that feel too like you're mm-hmm. like you're watching this machine because yeah. like you when you when you think about it like it's not that much of a rube goldberg like it's not like it's it's almost like too practical to really be called a Rube Goldberg. It's it's just mm. 
Like it does a couple things and there aren't lots of crazy. It's not like the crazy breakfast machine in Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which is the (laughs) other ground zero for Rube Goldberg's. It's, it's also kind of a breakfast machine. It's coffee, the TV and the dog food. (laughs) Yeah. The toast. And the toast, right. It introduces both Doc and Marty so well. It's just like, here's this guy who's like obsessive, obsessed with time, probably obsessed with the last 30 years of advancements and uh, trying to come up with time travel. And then we see the the plutonium, Mm -hmm. the kind of foreboding sense of, you know, danger. And then in comes this element of rock and roll, of youth, of skateboards and shades and (laughs) amps turned all the way up to overdrive. And that's just such a beautiful, like, distillation of what this movie is. The cross-section of nerdy sci-fi technobabble and teen angst and teen rebellion yeah those are the two sides of this coin and it's crazy that that you know that was something they thought of later that wasn't going to be the original opening of the film (laughs) Mm -hmm. i love that amp scene too i laugh every time he flies through the air yeah i love the little glint of light on the guitar pick like right when he's about to (laughs) hit the chord it's like something that belongs in a fantasy movie it's like his excalibur but then it's like no this is a comedy it just blows him almost naked gun style just like this comically large amp this tiny little man flying back and his tiny little guitar too i love how small that thing is that it's like a ukulele But I, and yeah, iconic introductions to one character that's on screen and one character that's off screen, you know. Great. Yeah. And then like it kicks right into power of love, like as soon as that, as the clocks go off and I'm late for school. Bump, bump. <laughs> <laughs> it just gets you so pumped. You're like, I am ready. Like it's that opening scene, that opening song is like, give me everything this movie has to offer. What's next? And I feel like we may have been familiar with Huey Lewis before we saw this movie that's true yeah our parents definitely had the sports album which we would listen to and dance to Mm -hmm. so i don't know i think that was maybe another you know in for us like oh (laughs) that's yeah that guy sounds familiar (laughs) yeah it's awesome and i think power of love is just a classic song and almost doesn't have anything to do with the film itself except to establish the time and place which it pretty (laughs) much is what the film is all about too so it's like it's like kind of perfect in a way you're always transported back to that time like you hear that song you're like yes this is clearly the 80s (laughs) but it's essentially like what the film is gonna be about it's like kind of reinforcing that like power of love right there's there is romance (laughs) ensure the romance (laughs) here's a question power of love or back in time what's your preference man i'm really glad you asked that question because i feel like (laughs) in recent times i've been like leaning more towards back in time because it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's like that another like jolt of energy right at the end of the film too. Like when that, when you see the DeLorean first like rise into the air and you're just like, yeah, so awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then <laughs> boom, 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 you know, it's, I think the horns give it to back in time for me. Yeah. Just ever so slightly. They're both so good. Yeah. I, I like to think of it as power of love is the George and Lorraine theme, but back in time is the Marty theme. Cause that mm-hmm. song is actually about mm-hmm. traveling through time and being confused and anxious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I'll, I'll be the contrarian and go with, I think I would stick with power of love. Yeah. I mean, it's solid too. I mean, they're both great, but if you're making me vote. Yeah, it's just by a hair. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Like, and like if you ask me in like different contexts, like I would rather sing "Power of Love" at karaoke mm. than "Back in Time," having done both. 
well back in time just ha- like nice. ends on like two minutes of horn solos basically <laughs> <laughs> that's my style right there yeah it's nice it's it's give me excessive yeah. uh instrumentals please <laughs> do, 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 do. yeah <laughs> i was i was playing it the other day and making my girlfriend laugh because i was just like i knew every little single part of that sax solo <laughs> in in the air sax version <laughs> Hitting it 100% precise. And if we're talking about musical pantomimes, can we please talk about Johnny Be Good? There's a lot to unpack there, I think. As a kid, I had memorized all the lyrics to the song because of this movie. I mean, that's another, you know, great scene that's just highly, you know, entertaining, comedic, going nuts, knocking over the... i like how like superfluous it is he's already like ensured that his parents get together now it's just like let's have some fun for a minute like let's just have a guitar solo let's do something that really cooks yeah yeah i I have a few minutes before i have to go back to the future (laughs) yeah like even even when he just goes he's like i can't i got it he's like come on man he's like uh okay (laughs) because <laughs> it's his dream like that's what we saw at the very beginning yeah. is like i want to be yeah, a big rock yeah. and roll star and i want to you know this is like Ugh. there's no one with a megaphone telling me i'm too loud like i i am right. on stage uh- <laughs> oh man like the planting and payoff of this movie is immaculate mm-hmm. if i ever teach screenwriting this would be like screenwriting 101 is back to the future like Here's how you plant and pay off. Here's how you like set up everything. This movie wastes no line of dialogue. Like every, it seems like every single line of dialogue pays off mm-hmm. later. Every single thing. Like it's just so tightly constructed and beautiful. It's part of it. I, I 100% agree because like I think the Bobs have said like that's the one scene that's just like ah eh, we're just having fun. But I mean if we're we are connecting it right now to like other yeah, other totally. things in the script. <laughs> I think it's it's like it maybe not advance the plot any further, but. It belongs. Character-wise. Yeah, yeah, it's character development. And one of the things, like, I also think it's a perfect script, and I was watching, rewatching Hot Fuzz the other day, and, Mm. like, that's another film, and all of Edgar Wright's films, to me, are are very much like that. Like, planting and payoff, (laughs) everything. It's very elegant. And I'm sure the reason I, one of the reasons I love his movies so much is because I love this movie so much. Like, this is really a good one to watch when you're young about, to show you how movies work or how they you know how they should work yeah and i think what i'm thinking of gets at that point that you're making that like when they're planting things for later you know like biff's interaction with george when the car is wrecked you know Mm -hmm. and knocking on his head and everything and calling marty a butthead and then you know mirror that mirroring the the 1955 interaction once you've seen the movie at least once you are now laughing at the first instance of it yeah. because you know what's coming mm-hmm. you know and like lorraine in 1985 talking about how she never did these things well once you've seen it mm-hmm. you now know that she mm-hmm. does and it's so yeah. it's like the setups become then jokes you know mm-hmm. upon the, yeah, the rewatch totally one of the funniest things in the whole movie like probably the thing that makes me laugh the most after having seen it and rewatching it <laughs> is at the very beginning when they're talking about how they met, and Lorraine's like, "What were you like? What were you doing in the middle of the street, anyways, George?" And he's like, "What? What, Lorraine? What?" Yeah. <laughs> like, he's so nervous <laughs> because he was a peeping tom, and he was like, you know, climbing a tree to like spy on some naked ladies, <laughs> and just like the guilt and the the nervousness of of Crispin Glover in that scene is so hilarious to me. <laughs> he's like, "What, what Lorraine?" <laughs> 
<laughs> bird watching? What were you doing? Bird watching? <laughs> you know, Crispin Glover in this movie is another great just perform inhabiting a different yeah. soul. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The George McFly character, he he's perfect use of those mannerisms and his voice to communicate, like just mm-hmm. how nerdy and feeble this man is throughout his whole life basically yeah. uh, one that really gets me every time in the beginning uh is biff to like you know write up the reports you know i gotta have to ha- have time to get them retyped and george is like you know okay i'll do that and then i'll just run him over there and he does like that like hip swivel thing yeah. <laughs> i'll just run him on over there like a nerd and then pouring out the peanut brittle into a bowl and just why is he doing all these things it's a very strange man and of course Watching that Honeymooners rerun and doing that strange laugh, <laughs> which I can actually do uh, involuntarily. Like I, if I'm right. caught in it's... the right kind of mood and <laughs> yeah, right not, kind it's of funny, not so much on command, you know, but yeah, <laughs> I have that halting, like struggling to breathe kind of laugh. <laughs> like over the years, we've actually gone. Oh, he's doing the George McFly laugh right now. <laughs> <laughs> Woo, gotta change that oil, Dad. And I, I love his version of badass, which is ordering a chocolate milk oh, at yeah. the bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just He's amazing. Cowboy. Yeah, yeah and, and of course, Teen George is also like where it really shines, like how anxious this person yeah. is. Like slinking away, like when Marty, like Marty is trying to introduce him to Lorraine at first, like at the yeah. lockers. And she just pays no attention to him. He just kind of like in the background, just like makes himself smaller and just exactly. And same same with the later scene when uh, he Marty gets him to like go to the bar and go with his notepad to like tell her, you know, she's his density. And then Marty steals the show when he, you know, invents the skateboard and <laughs> runs away from Biff. Like there's the reaction shot of like all the all mm-hmm. the girls being like infatuated with Marty, and in the background great performance that i feel like i i missed until recently you see chris mcglover just like with his notepad just be like all right yeah like of course this would happen to me and he just he, again he slinks mm-hmm. away he's just like yeah uh, it's it's really great underrated performance by chris mcglover like in the in the smaller moments in the background moments yeah and i think it makes the payoff of the punch all the more awesome you know compelling <laughs> and and part of the reason why you love it is it's like you've seen him be this like nervous anxious guy the whole movie and in that moment he's just like no i'm gonna you know yeah yeah I'm not backing down you see his and... his face like changes like in that mm-hmm. he's like it's like a first like it's that burst into tears expression he always has where like he's about yeah. to burst into tears and then it like as Bill, Biff just keeps laughing, like he scrunches up his face, scowls, and like that, his fist comes together, and he's like, even though his arm's still quivering, he's still like terrified to do this. I like that so much better than that one from one of those Hunger Games movies, like at the end where Katniss is like <laughs> crying, and then she's like, woo, gets the turban face in like the space of three seconds. <laughs> I like George McFly did it better. I like that one better. <laughs> and of course, his counterpart, Leah Thompson, who we talked a little bit about already like in that bedroom scene with marty but she's just perfect throughout it too Mm -hmm. i think over the years she's like the best the most convincing like old person out of anyone in the cast when they have to age them up because she just transforms my god like it took me so long to catch that she's pouring vodka straight you know into her glass (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah like i always forget that this is pretty much a movie of teens. Like the whole cast, so young. except yeah. for like Doc Brown, is teens. Biff, Lorraine, George. Like when when 
Lorraine snaps at her eldest son, like, Dave, watch your language. Like, that's, <laughs> that's like, whoa. <laughs> that, that's like, that's not, how, how is an actress who's like 21 or 22 at the time, like, just perfectly yeah. <laughs> playing middle age? 21 yeah. to play 46. That's great. <laughs> I think something that also I started thinking about recently is the fact that George and Lorraine were together for quite a while before they had their children because, Marty's the youngest, but it doesn't really give any indication that, you know, they're more than a year or two apart, all of them. So doing the math, like they're all born in like the late, mid to late sixties. Well, and they were only 17 when they first got together. So. Right. Yeah. But you think of the time period as well, like in the fifties, like, eh, I mean, they mm-hmm. might have started to have kids a little bit earlier, but that it makes more sense when the, uh, positive future has been revealed. It's like, oh, okay, maybe they went to college and like they <laughs> took more time. <laughs> yeah, the oldest brother seems to be like a businessman already. Yeah. So, well, there's another character though that we still need to talk about, and that is Biff Tannen, the classic bully archetype. Yes. <laughs> and it's so interesting to me that like there are many ways where Back to the Future kind of fits into that genre of 80s teen movies, and like you know yeah. those bullies are a dime a dozen. Like that's always the villain. Even up to today, you could argue there's like, you know, teen oriented movies usually have this kind of a character in, in them, but eighties and nineties, especially. So there's just something about this particular flavor of bully that seems so perfect. And I think it is truly this ideal mixture combination of intimidation and buffoonery. He's like, he's scary and he's also a damn fool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like, um, this movie is so 80s, even though most of it is technically in the 50s. But I think it's because it's juxtaposing like 50s values against mm-hmm. the 80s. Comparing and contrasting that it ultimately is just like a great 80s movie. But but yeah, Biff is a totally 80s bully. Who's stuck stuck in the 50s. <laughs> that exists in the yeah. 50s, yeah. Because he grows up to be like the, the Donald Trump yep. type of the 80s that bullies the little man, his employees, and it, it works. You know, all the great biffisms too. Like the, it, it, it just like raises your hackles and all like it, it pushes all the right <laughs> buttons. Cause it's like, God, this guy's such an asshole, you know, because he is, he is like intimidating and bullying and, you know, disrespectful, rude, but he's also dumb as a rock. And that's just not fair. <laughs> like why he, you know, he, the way that he gets to have power over people because he's just bigger and willing to be very, very, very unpleasant. And man, yeah, Donald Trump stuff spot on. Of course, we definitely see that in part two. Number two. And yeah. confirmed, especially in recent years by Bob Gale. Be like, yes, I was thinking of Trump when I wrote that. <laughs> so I think that's, yeah, Biff endures because of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just love his face before he gets punched. This confusion of what? <laughs> Why would anybody stand up to me? Like, it's just. Yeah. He's never had a taste of his own medicine, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what we're saying about kind of like the connections between the 50s and the 80s is something that's discussed in this BFI film classics book on Back to the Future that Cam got me for Christmas, Ooh. which I read. I read it a few years ago. It's, it's a little rusty. Yeah. So yeah, please bring. That is one of the one of the chapters in this, like is kind of pointing that out like in the ways the ways that this movie kind of resembles and subverts kind of the idea of a teenage 
movie and that it's very telling in the way that it aligns the 50s with the 80s because it's true like you don't get the sense that any of the social change of the 60s and 70s happened like it kind of, <laughs> it kind of like the, the the movie's 1985 is kind of you know it's not really present there which again was another period that was very big for young people you know protest movements civil rights in vietnam etc but the reagan era almost is kind of like a quasi or it's an, it's definitely got there was definitely a nostalgia for the 1950s like that is part of its appeal like this much simpler time. And if, of course, that's why it's perfect that Ronald Reagan, the actor, is president <laughs> yeah. in 1985. I feel like we go through cycles where like, you know, certain values kind of go out of fashion and then come back into fashion. You know, like that toxic masculinity is like probably cycled back around from the 50s mm-hmm. to the 80s where like the, you know, the jocks overcame the nerds, yeah. you know, once again. In, Chauvinism in 80s, is back, you know. baby. Material wealth and excess is like in again. Yeah. You know, there was like a financial boom after World War II in the 50s that was probably being felt again in mm-hmm. the 80s. Consumer society. We covered our four by fours, our brand new Toyotas. <laughs> <laughs> that's always been something that I've thought was interesting over the years like that's marty's like hot car again a very very 80s looking mm-hmm. truck <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> what are those weird lights they've got on top of it like what is going on here but i kind of like that that's different from like say ferris bueller where the the hot car is a ferrari like it always seems to be a sports car in these 80s movies but marty wants him a truck well let's look at the delorean yeah <laughs> the delorean like from what I understand, the DeLorean was kind of like a lame sports car. Like, it's still a sports car. Mm-hmm. It's still like an attempt to be cool. But it's not what Marty himself is after. That's true. Uh, yeah. Like, there's there's a lot to go into if, like, you look up the history of the DeLorean, which is very fascinating on its own. But, like, that was almost a subconscious thing in the in the script. It's just like, well, what's, what's just a very 80s car that would freak people out if they saw it in the 50s? Like, what yeah, looks like a yeah. spaceship, you know? Yeah. So they use the DeLorean. I think that's like a brilliant stroke of this movie is like, let's pick like the tackiest version of cool <laughs> right now, like yeah. in the eighties right now, which is a DeLorean and like instantly iconic because of that. Like it's, it's just like futuristic, but in a very 80, through a very eighties lens. Right. It's like when you, whenever, if you've ever visited like an, like the old world expo, like anywhere they've had a world expo, yeah. like in New York in 64 or, um, if you, I've been to the Olympic Park in Montreal, which was like 1976, also the site of a world exposition. And it's like the future of the past, you know? <laughs> it's like yeah, this is what yeah. they thought was going to be big. Retro future. Yeah, exactly. And even like, and just Tokyo, Japan. I'll just throw that out there too. Like at all times, Tokyo feels like retro futurism. But man, gotta love that DeLorean. Like you said, mm. a master stroke. <laughs> yeah, just like the blocky... The blockiness of it is so charming and great. The gold wing doors, like it's opening <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> strangely. A car with doors that open up, like yeah. <laughs> I like how Doc is like starting to explain something about the stainless steel construction, like yeah. being important. And, and but that's like when Einstein is like his, he's making his return, <laughs> so they have to get out of the way. It's like, oh no, he's about to say why it has to be a DeLorean. It's like no, just because it's cool. <laughs> So in life, like everyone's just excited to see a DeLorean now, which is an incredible turnaround, I'm sure, from the reputation it had. They they had been, they had stopped being manufactured by the time this movie came out. It was only a few years. I think I read the last statistic I read is there's only like 600 of them around today. 
but still i've seen several like i've seen <laughs> like, like what you said amy like when you saw went to that event like mm-hmm. in 2010 i've I see him at like comic-con or or other events but i did see one on the road once being wow. driven in southern california and i was just like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> Like it's rare to see an unmodified DeLorean. Like most of the ones that are left over have got to be ones that are just, you know, people, people wanting to own their own mock-up of the time machine. Yeah. Amazing. You caught them in the wild. It's yeah. It's not an easy thing to do. That reminds me though of the theme park ride, which I know Amy can speak to because Mm -hmm. I never got a chance to go on it. No, no. Oh man. Well, yeah, I, mean, we were, I had a chance, but I was too young, I think. Right, yeah. We were there in 92, mm-hmm. I believe, in Florida. Florida. So, yeah, I think you were only you would have only been like five. and But I went on it with my dad. and But that was the only time, I think, because the time we went, by the time we went again to Florida, it had, it was no longer existing as a ride. So, yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, I I remember, you know, you got to like, Pretend like you were sitting in it, and then it was one of those motion... Um, motion simulator? Simulator rides, yeah. And you were kind of, like, doing some time traveling. I don't remember a lot of the plot of the little movie that was happening at the time, but... It's the Simpsons ride now, I believe. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I don't remember the plot either. I did watch the ride yeah. video before <laughs> yeah. before doing this episode, and... Yeah, the plot is basically, like, you're at the Institute of Future Technology. Like, Doc is, like, this you know, director of an institute now and where they're doing more time travel experiments with a bunch of DeLoreans, but Biff breaks in and steals one of them. So you have to chase him. Kind of coming back to me now that you're describing it. Yeah. So you're chasing Biff and the idea is you bump him. Like you, you have to like touch his DeLorean to get it, send me both back oh. to the future as it were. And it's cool because they're they're probably making this ride and thinking like oh we can go all of these kind of cool places but they realize that no the mechanism of this time machine is you only move through time and not space like you <laughs> you're always going to be in hill valley <laughs> unless you like drive it somewhere else yeah. you know in whatever time period you're in right. so th- so it goes to the future first but then like then it goes back in time a couple times but like it's like an ice age and then it's just like a volcano <laughs> <laughs> not a whole lot going on in california Hill Valley, the, specifically that square, yeah, is like the nexus of this like time travel adventure. It's so important to all three movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you see it across so many different time periods. Yeah. I just like that it's also centralized and like about Marty and the McFlies and Doc and mm-hmm. like it's this cosmic infinite story. But ultimately, it's about one community. This one, <laughs> yeah, one community, one family, one bloodline i no, i I totally get what you're saying um and i think it's because it's a very american way to look at time travel like our history is very as a nation is very young especially if you're somewhere like california in terms of like the impact that america has had on this place so yeah (laughs) they could go there could be like eons of time to explore but why would we Americans weren't weren't there. <laughs> Who cares? McFly's weren't yeah. around. <laughs> Who cares? I thought about this too because I read I reread H.G. Wells' The Time Machine after hearing Bob Gale reference it in a couple of the commentaries that I watched. Because that's how they get wow. the idea for you know the time machine that is like again moving you through space or moving you through time but not through space. So wherever like mm-hmm. you're using it, that's where you end up. 
and of course, you know, Doc Brown's big innovation is to make it mobile. You build it into a car. But rereading that novel, which of course is written by a British person, there's much more of a sense of like the span of time and like the way that like civilizations evolve. <laughs> the the time traveler in that novel goes like eight hundred thousand years into the future and observes things. Other than like the actual machine itself, there isn't really a lot of parallel between this book and this film. Except I will note that the time machine was published in 1895, which is a nice little analog of 1985, the year of release of Mm -hmm. Back to the Future. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, you know, read kind of this movie's take on time travel as, like you were saying, more personal. It's not so much about what kind of cool thing in history can I see or can I go explore the future? I mean, kind of by accident because he's just, you know, throwing dates into the machine there in the beginning, but it becomes very much about, okay, what happens if I change this moment in my past? And, you know, how does that affect the future? And it's very much about the impact of, I think, your immediate people on each other and how that can shape you over the course of your lives. Um, Because I really picked up on this time that apparently, you know, Marty is, or Doc is um, purported to have said to Marty, like, if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything, right? And then Marty says that to George when he's trying to encourage him, you know, for Lorraine. And then George says it in the, you know, changed 1985 when he gets his book. And so it's like this, you know, one kind of piece of advice that is this domino effect and yet just within this one little family. It's yeah, because it's about choices that people make essentially. Mm-hmm. Like you're saying the influence that those choices have not just on you but on other people. And like that's that's I think where the biggest ripples can be made. It's like it might be easy to to go back and see like oh this changed me or like when I decided to do this then it led to this, but I think it has an even bigger impact like that we don't even realize on the people around us and like the world around us. And yeah, that evergreen piece of advice is a great example of that because it's also what Marty needs to hear, you know, in his life. Mm -hmm. And of course that evolves across the sequels into also like, don't get mad when people call you a chicken. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But here it's like, it's very, it's, it's much tighter and like it's more poignant, I guess in this one. Mm -hmm. You know, you think of time travel as very macro, you know, your, your imagination can go wild, but in the case of this movie, it is very micro, you know, just how do these moments in this specific family's lives, you know, affect how they see themselves, how they go forward into the future. Right. And I think one of the, like, if time travel were real, it's like, it's totally one of the lessons that people would get from it. It's like, oh, like my decisions, my actions affect people in ways I haven't even imagined. Mm hmm. Along with the other big lesson of the movie, which is like, oh my God, my parents are people too. <laughs> uh, I love that idea so much. Like, yeah, you have a, you can go anywhere in history, but like, let's see what dad was like in high school. <laughs> um, because that, that really is like kind of the most important thing you need to, to know about <laughs> your family. Take it easy, you know, like, and, and have empathy. Like if, you know, time machines maybe are empathy machines in, in kind of the most utopian way to look at it mm. i don't know how to segue into this but i just have been wanting to talk about the score to this film <laughs> <laughs> by mr alan silvestri 
Well, I guess if we're talking about the emotionality of the movie, mm-hmm. I think the score does a lot of the heavy lifting. Yeah. Because yeah. the performances are just so funny and like the movie is at its heart a comedy. But when that score, like it does not have like a tr- traditional like comedic score or, you know, teen mm-hmm. movie score. It's got a it's, big it's epic. epic. Yeah. It's, just, mm-hmm. yeah, it's huge. It's, it's, it's just enormous. Towering. Yeah. And it really just builds those emotional moments you know and brings it in you know particularly obviously the climactic clock tower sequence um Mm -hmm. you know the beginning when he's trying to get away from the libyans and and all of those just kind of heightens the feel of what you're feeling you know one of my favorite uh moments is when you know marty interferes with the peeping tom sequence where you know george is up in the tree he falls to the ground and then marty pushes him out of the way and then marty is the one that gets hit by the car instead of george and george just pops up into the foreground and then we hear the back to the future like <laughs> we know we know this moment is important yep time has been changed it's such a great like musical way to n- indicate shit's going down right yes. now I like to call that that's like the supernatural <laughs> cue. Like it's just yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um whenever something like kind of eerie or like awe inspiring yeah. is happening cuz you also hear it when the DeLorean is first unveiled like that the bed yeah. just, uh, uh slides down and all that steam and smoke is coming out of the back of the yeah. truck. <laughs> it's like it's an otherworldly thing. Like other yeah, like yeah. strange otherworldly things are happening when you hear that cue. <laughs> I also love like in in the few mo- like moments where shit gets real like where you're where you're feeling anxiety and fear like it, like it's like com- sounds completely different like it's not even doesn't even seem like part of the score but that li- like really weird low thrumming like when Biff is twisting George's arm mm, especially yeah. so and it's just another flavor that this score has and I love it to pieces yeah. And I think it's most important in the climax, of course, during the lightning storm. It just makes you feel so tense, but also so excited and relieved. And it's just matched perfectly, you know, the pacing of the film, the mu- the music in that part, that sequence especially brings it along and like takes you through, you know, heartbeat by heartbeat, second by second, because there's a, a, like a set of four minutes where they're literally like showing you like the clock, like. Like as it's counting down to ten oh four, which is when the lightning will strike, it's showing what it's happening like in each of those minutes, and you don't realize how short of a time that is. Like you're just like in that living in that moment when the car mm-hmm. won't start, when the cable slips, when the cable like can't get back together again. You know, it's it's incredible. I mean, I've seen this movie so so many times, mm-hmm. and every time that sequence is like. I feel the tension and the suspense and it's like, are they going to make it? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I know what happens, but. <laughs> yep. That's, that's the power of sound and visual together. Just making mm-hmm. us, making us excited, making us tense and then giving us that catharsis. And Doc, of course, like running on the street, like 88 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing I'd note is like, People think of this as like big special effects movies, but that's really more of the sequels than this one. The visual effects are, you know, are good for the most part. I think the one, the one dud is like when he's got that arm like disintegrating in front of his face. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That doesn't hold up too well, but the, uh, the fire trails are 
you know, not too bad. Even the poof, like in the in the in the mall parking lot at the beginning, like when the DeLorean just poofs out of existence, it's really it's really well done. Like that huge explosion of powder or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. This one isn't too reliant on special effects because most of it is in the fifties, yeah. and like it, it's really just like getting Marty to the past and getting him back to the future. Like that's mm-hmm. that's where your effects are needed. But other, otherwise, it's like a fairly it's character driven. You know, yeah. Yeah. And very tellingly, like one of one of the time transitions takes place off camera, like when Doc leaves Marty, like drops him off at his house. Mm. And there's, you know, you just see the flash from off screen and hear the noise. <laughs> Budget. Yep. <laughs> Do you guys have any um, like lines that you really enjoy that you feel are kind of like overlooked, you know, not as quoted because... I certainly have one that I've been trying to find a way to work in, and uh, this is my way of doing it. I mean, the only one I think of is, what, Lorraine? What? <laughs> yeah. That is great. I think of uh, Lorraine's dad. Who the hell is John F. Kennedy? <laughs> <laughs> Mine is also Lorraine's dad, but it's a different line. After uh, Marty gets hit by the car, he goes, Another one of these damn kids jumped in front of my car. And you're like, wait, what? Another yeah. one? <laughs> this has happened before. That reminds me of also, wait, George, Dad, hey, you were on the bike. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot in in like the 50s scene, especially like when Marty and, and people, Marty's feeling out this new time period and they're trying, they're mm-hmm. also trying to like figure him out. All the jokes about his vest. Yeah. So. Uh, or it's like, you want me to donate to the Coast Guard Youth Auxiliary? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the classic, what's a rerun? Yeah. <laughs> and I've also been known to think of like Lorraine's dad was like, whoa, look at it roll. Whenever I'm like wheeling something that has like dolly wheels <laughs> on it. Ooh, look at it roll. Now I can watch Jackie Gleason while we eat. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I could go forever just talking about lines from this movie. As we yeah. said a lot, it's a it's a brilliant script. Part of our vernacular. Yeah. Although the the costume, like the vest, is is a good way for me to talk about the novelization that I also read. I read so much. Yeah. <laughs> read so much to prepare for this. It is kind of it's it's not a great novelization, mostly because like you know it's a comedy. Most of that's going to come through on the screen. And the ways that they kind of have to expand it into book form means like they're riffing on the same joke too long. Like they give, mm. they give a couple extra lines where it's like, that's okay enough. Um, but also this is, you know, written, I think when the script was in a slightly earlier form, it was probably the version that they started shooting with Eric Stoltz. The opening sequence is not, you know, the doc's lab. It's Marty in detention and like creating an ingenious way to get out, like where he, basically sets the fire alarms off so like the sprinklers go and everyone gets to leave school <laughs> which is an inter- kind of an interesting um direction to take it in like oh maybe marty also has this kind of like spirit of ingenuity and innovation maybe that's why he's drawn to doc i don't know other than he just has a giant amp <laughs> I think that's the only reason but they do make reference to, like the clothing and people pointing it out but it's just like they, they talk about he's wearing a u.s patent office t-shirt and i looked up some stills like eric stoltz stills and that's what he's wearing in in that version in that version that was shot like kind of just kind of a t-shirt like a funky 80s t-shirt 
and green shoes, apparently. That's also mentioned. Interesting. Because you do get some shots, some close-ups of Marty's Nikes that no one comments on until <laughs> until the third movie. <laughs> yeah, those are very prominent, you know, in this one. I thought of that, like him getting in and out of the car uh, yeah. a lot. Mm. You see his his sneaks, his cool sneaks. And of course, like when he changes after the dance, like that's... I like I like how he has to take that time too. The way the way they show us that is like him lacing up his shoes. Like he had to change out of that suit that he's wearing back into right. his 1985 clothes because he has to wear precisely what he was wearing. <laughs> <laughs> I think if I'm going to also give my honest appraisal of this movie, I have to talk about well, first of all, Marty inventing rock and roll played <laughs> as a joke. <laughs> I mean, like yeah. that was a, that's a little more thoughtless these and days skateboarding. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i had the same reaction i for years i have loved that bit that you know that <laughs> joke where marvin is on the phone uh, yeah and watching <laughs> it in the past couple months i'm like ooh, yeah that's that's not great now yeah is that something that white people actually did for many <laughs> years it's like no this is ours yeah. now like <laughs> well i think i think also and this is t- obviously talked about in the um bfi book a little bit too one thing i that was brought to my attention was the fact that the other guys in the band once marty starts doing the rock and roll like they are like approving it like yes yeah. so it's like it's got the seal of approval from the black people <laughs> it's like no 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 that's not how it happened like the, the scene itself is still entertaining and i think that's because of michael michael j fox's just charisma and charm it's so intense that it even makes that work even though like i'm thinking about this like how how kind of insensitive this joke is <laughs> and mm-hmm. and and it's really like the, the the main part of it is like you said amy when he's on the phone talking like chuck berry here steal this guy's <laughs> idea right as if this white dude is responsible right. for <laughs> for rock and roll it's the time travel brain melting yeah stuff. yeah it's just the, it's just like marty has the shortcuts yeah. ultimately time travel is a is a metaphor for the shortcuts that white people have yeah there you go <laughs> <laughs> the joke is probably also more focused just well it's, first of all it's like a, it's a tiny throwaway joke and it's also like focused i think more on the song johnny be good itself because i looked up like chuck berry had a couple hits before november of 1955 in the real world that were like you know the nascent rock and roll songs like maybelline mm-hmm. is one of them and it's also interesting to note that one of the moves that Marty's doing is that Chuck Berry, like when he does like that thing where he's walking like mm. a duck and like puts like the mm-hmm. one leg and is hopping, that's Chuck Berry's signature move, which I didn't know for years. I just thought it was a wacky mm. thing that Marty McFly is doing in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. He does like the whole history of rock and roll. Yeah. He does like a little bit of ACDC. Yeah. He does a little bit of Hendrix. He's paying homage to a lot yeah. of different eras he's of rock like windmilling roll. like uh pete townsend and he's yeah yeah <laughs> and he, like van halen he's just, like like crawling mm-hmm. around on the floor <laughs> mm-hmm. i would replicate that sometimes you know when listening <laughs> to johnny be good as a kid i just love that one move where he just yeah he's down on the floor he's like pushing himself back another thing is like interesting to note is like the material success we we, we touched on it but the material success being the ultimate reward which I think was one of the reasons Crispin Glover hates this movie. <laughs> it's such a shame, too, because he's so good as George McFly. Yeah. But apparently even during filming, he was not loving it. But Well, I mean, that's very 80s. Yeah, exactly. You know, material wealth. Yeah. And... But I think like the touchiest thing, obviously, is like 
Biff uh, attacking Moraine. It's not playing for laughs. We'll give it that. But it is kind of just like a plot point in this. Lorraine is getting assaulted and then George comes in and saves her. But then what's weirder is even more weird is that 30 years later, he's there in their employ. Like this guy that tried to attack you. Yeah. Like you keep him around. Yeah, that's, that's disturbing. Before and after. Even even after like the, the ideal life, he's still like around. <laughs> that's unsettling. It is unsettling. At least he's like put in his place, you know. Biff, yeah. don't con me. But the line about like what a character just seems like really out of place, <laughs> like mm-hmm. depending based on what you know about Biff Tannen, right? Like, yeah. Your interactions in your in high school. So there's that, and of course the one of the ultimate questions that I think has come up a lot in the Twitter age as like younger people start to discover this, or at least what I've seen. George and Lorraine, why don't they question the fact that their son looks exactly like this guy <laughs> that got them both together? <laughs> When they were teens. <laughs> I mean, well, I have my own explanations, but I am, I am curious to hear yours. <laughs> I've always just sort of interpreted that as their interaction with Marty in 1955, although fairly significant in that he gets them together, was also just like, you know, what, a week's worth of time when they were 17. Um, and then, you know, however many years later, it is until he really strongly resembles this person. I don't know. I just don't know that that would be my response to it. Yeah. I don't know that they would be like, be able to exactly remember how this person looked. Um, Maybe it's like the doc Brown thing where it's like his, his memory is conveniently hazy mm -hmm. around the time of this (laughs) time travel. When you disturb uh, the space time continuum. Yeah. 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 Something to your brain. (laughs) I, 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 you know, I, I tend to think along the same lines as you, Amy. And I add the fact that like, there's no, like he, it's not like he's a guy that went to their school. He wouldn't be in their yearbook. They'd never like, they don't have like a photo of him. Mm -hmm. It would be easy like to remember that person, but to forget what he looked like Mm -hmm. because you know, these days we have documentation of everything. We go back and Mm -hmm. on Facebook and Instagram and look at people like pictures are everywhere now. But like back then, and like even in the fifties and in the eighties, it's like unless you really took the time to sit there and take a photo of this guy, you wouldn't remember. You wouldn't, you know, right. over three decades, yeah, you'd forget what he looked like. So there you have it. Not a plot hole. <laughs> <laughs> this movie is good. My one last question. Yes, Eric, would you consider this a dad venture? <laughs> <laughs> oh, good point. Good question. Um, I don't know. It's more like a son venture. <laughs> it's not yeah it's the dad learning to have an event i could see dad going off on dad ventures because he met his son mm. thanks to his son but it's I, I feel like the fact that the son and the dad are like entwined in oh this, yeah in this plot I line guess, like yeah. i feel like it's a dad venture. yeah you're right i you know what <laughs> now that i think about it i i agree with you then because a lot of the the definition of a dad venture often includes the action from an outside actor you know, getting them to like in the in the mindset or just giving them the motivation to do something <laughs> like the Santa Claus, like put on yeah. that suit, right. ask out Lorraine. Come on. <laughs> Dad venture it is. Any other points we'd like to make? I wrote down a lot of things, but um, I know sometimes I did too. And but they're just kind of random. <laughs> I feel like we should just mention Goldie Wilson just to throw it out there. That's like one of my favorite. <laughs> Mayor. Mayor. <laughs> 
clean up this town. Like you can start by mopping the floor. <laughs> One of the things that I love is the switch from the Twin Pines Mall to the Lone Pine Mall. <laughs> yeah. And part oh, of yeah. what I love about it is that like they do mention the name, you know, Twin Pines a couple of times, but you just the Lone Pine part, you just have to notice when he goes back and the signs different. Yeah. Like they don't ever yeah. call it that again. So I like right. that little but, like sneaky this was also altered. Doesn't the guy say like my pine? Like, yeah. He, mm-hmm. What does he say? Bastard, kill my pine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he references the pine. I've 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 been a much bigger fan of Old Man Peabody over the years. Like that <laughs> that sequence at his farm is so hilarious, especially with the mailbox exploding as yeah. Marty drives away. And like, you mutated son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, like, I like the kid who's like probably deep into like fifties sci-fi comics. He's yeah. like, he's mutated into human form. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> his dad just believes them. You mutated yeah. son of a bitch. <laughs> Which of course comes into play too when when Marty dons the hazmat suit and comes to George as Darth Vader from the planet Vulcan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which then becomes George's novel. Yes, <laughs> that's another fun thing that I think you. <laughs> it takes a couple of viewings to pick up on. You're like you're looking at that cover illustration. Like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's the what's the title of his novel? The... A match made a in match space. A match made in space. <laughs> a match made in space. We were both we both knew that cold, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, it's it's fun. You know, when whenever we'd watch the VHS as kids, of course, it ends like with the to be continued. You know, mm. title at the end. Which was I discovered recently was only added for the home video release. Oh really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's the only version of the movie I know. Yep. So like, it, well, as you can imagine, the theaters, yeah, it, it didn't say too. <laughs> they didn't know they were going to get a sequel. Yeah. And like, that Bob Gale has said, like, if I knew there was, I wouldn't have had the girlfriend come along in the DeLorean <laughs> at the end. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, and obviously in part two, they immediately have to knock her out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> whoop so well yeah and it's in, uh, the the dvd version that i have it restores that that theatrical cut which is basically it doesn't have that to be continued title hmm. back to the future might be the, the first instance of like a cliffhanger in my in my mm. life of a movie that ends on like a wait for more kind of right a tease and a nice tease yeah. for you <laughs> so we can thank back to the future for priming me for the marvel universe <laughs> That's right. Maybe Back to the Future is responsible for the MCU. Not Marvel Comics, just Back to the Future. (laughs) Well, it's funny how, like, how much they put into that just was basically just like a throwaway gag for the ending. Like, they thought of the changes that would happen with the DeLorean itself. Like, Mm. oh no, now Mm -hmm. it runs in this fusion reactor. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is wild. Yeah. And Doc's wearing this clothes. Yeah. And the license plate is different in that scene. Doc's been in the future and yeah it's like the the ellipsis you know there is so is so like whoa what what happened (laughs) how much time has he been spending in the future he had to register his vehicle (laughs) (laughs) i know like initially you're like he hasn't been gone that long but then you think well he could be gone as long as he wanted and come back to this exact point in time yep uh it's magical it's just the more we talk about it the more magical it becomes what a what a wonderful film. What a wonderful thing in the world. All right. So where we're going next, we don't need roads. We just need pitches. Oh, 
to say today when we I'm in it for riches. Sequel, prequel, remake, wanna throw me some pitches for guffin'. I had a really hard time with this because I feel like just the weight, because Great Scott, this is heavy. <laughs> this, this franchise looms so large. And has explored so much territory. I know. And and I feel like I, I might have more fleshed out pitches for sequels because I feel like they'll tie more into like the mythology that like parts two and three establishes. But in thinking about just expanding like the, the mythology of this first movie, I really gravitated towards like the Doc Brown that has possibly known the events of all this movie <laughs> from the get-go. So I really want to see just like modern day Christopher Lloyd, Doc Brown, like haunted by his time travel adventures. So let's say a, a sequel is set in present day, 2022, let's say, if we're, you know, getting this started this year <laughs> to release next year or so. About seven years after the future we saw in Back to the Future 2, 2015 although history has not turned out that way because you know let's let's chalk it up to like time travel interventions and just things playing out differently based on choices that marty has made and doc has made and everything uh so after the third film we see uh you know marty and doc have had a few time time travel adventures as we saw in the animated series but uh now uh, michael j fox is playing middle-aged marty mcfly uh, with a 20-something son, Marty Jr., played by Tom Holland. Let's just, like, soft <laughs> reboot Marty Jr., yeah. who knows nothing about his dad's former time travel adventures. But, I, I don't know, this is very loose. I, I actually, like, I wrote down, I started to write that, something down, but I, I couldn't do it. I, 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 didn't, I didn't finish it, so... that's. that's... <laughs> I'm, uh, that's fair. You'd leave it alone. Basically. I'm, I'm flying by the seat of my seat of my life jacket. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, jump ship. Basically, I, I want to see like a, a haunted Doc Brown who like regrets all his time time travel adventures because like uh, he he ultimately discovers that like the moment he invented time travel, he it was it was nothing but like going back in time and like having to ensure that your your past self or your parents got together it's just like this overwhelming pressure to like keep the space-time continuum together and so he's like what i need to do is like stop myself from ever inventing time travel and so i don't know i i envision like a, a marty jr perhaps getting like a letter from a doc brown who's who's either like trapped in the future or trapped in like some some time limbo or something gets a letter from from doc saying like you need to go back and like ensure that i never invent time travel so that none of this ever happens again but since since i don't i don't i don't know if michael j fox is is uh the one to be our protagonist in 2020 2021 let's give it to marty jr who has to go back in time to like when doc first invented time travel and like and it's not 1955. It's not when he hit his head. It's actually like earlier than that because like that was when he like cracked how to do it. But like the the initial kernel of the idea, let's say Doc Brown came up with when he was a young lad, when he was like about Marty Jr.'s age. He's like in his 20s, let's say. So he's it's like the 30s, 1930s. So somehow Marty Jr. travels back with the DeLorean, comes across the young Doc Brown who's like, toying with the idea of time travel but 
No one believes in his ideas, especially his father, who's like this grumpy old man, played by Christopher Lloyd, of course, because, you know, (laughs) all people related to our characters have to be played by the same actors. We have a, a young actor playing like the young Doc Brown, but then... Christopher Lloyd playing his like grumpy old father <laughs> who's who's constantly like discouraging his son and his ideas and his radical ideas about time travel and science fiction and all these things. Uh, and ultimately, it, it turns out that Marty Jr. learns that like Doc only recently uh, reunited with his long lost father. And we learn that the the father played by Christopher Lloyd is actually Doc Brown himself, a future version of Doc Brown himself who has come back in order to prevent himself from inventing time travel. He's trying to discourage himself from inventing time travel. <laughs> but ultimately, like, Marty Jr., through whatever logic, through whatever emotional, like, no, this needs to happen because we need to be friends, we need to be family, you, we need to go on this adventure together, ensures that it does happen. And kind of gets the old man, Doc Brown, who is resigned to destroy the past. He kind of brings him back around to, to be like, oh, wait, this is all worth it. This is all, I don't know. This, <laughs> Like I said, I'm, I'm improvising here. <laughs> but uh, I feel like ultimately it has to come back to like bring the old man Doc back to, you know, this is all worth it. Yeah. Coming back to the present and which is our our current present day. I don't know. Yeah. Well, maybe like does Marty Jr. even exist if Marty doesn't have his time travel adventures, you know? Right. <laughs> that could be something. But I also like kind of the idea. Well, first of all, I like the, the J. Robert Oppenheimer version of Doc Brown. Like, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like the kind of the inversion of Marty encouraging George is old Doc Brown discouraging young Doc Brown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I go back yeah. in time and he's like, no, don't do that. <laughs> That sounds like fun, though, especially Tom Holland as <laughs> Marty McFly. Jr. I mean, I, I feel like he he has such he has such Marty McFly. Yeah, energy. he has that energy, that that charm. Yeah, and he looks pretty similar. So my my title for this new kind of phase of the franchise would be Back from the Future. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very nice. Um, so I've I've got one that's like again just kind of like a loose sketch because, like you said, Cam, like this is such a of great burden it's a great responsibility yeah. it's like hard it's hard to come up with different ideas for this we should also point out that bob zemeckis and bob gale have publicly stated many times that they there will never be another sequel or remake <laughs> of back to the future as long as they are alive so this truly is just spitballing so <laughs> yeah but since like given the whole johnny be good thing that i was talking about earlier i'd like to see you know a black version of this story um so this time it would be set the modern day would be 2015 and the travel back is to 1985 because that's, I think that's enough of a jump where again, the world was very, very different in 1985 looking mm-hmm. at it from the lens of 2015. And then again, it's an accidental trip back because it's, it's, it's just, a, it's a mistake. And I think there's always a joke that's been made about like for black people, time travel to the past would be a nightmare. Like why would anyone want to go back to the past when they were, more oppressed so the main character going back to 19 just 1985 finds a community that's like we're, we're getting the the signals that it's more prejudiced and more segregated this will be kind of a parody of the chauvinistic reagan era america in the way that this 1955 was kind of like a very kind of idealized but 
still a little seamy uh, version of the past. One of the things I like about Back to the Future is it communicates like the the good old days weren't always so good. Uh, it still had still had issues, still had problems. So, for example, in this version, you know, the main character school it has far fewer black students in 1985 than it did in 2015, and she struggles to fit in not only only because she's out of time, but because of like the preconceptions of this particular era. And also, instead of saving her family, this is more about Doc Brown struggling to be taken seriously as an inventor and like get credit for what he does because again he would be a black character and then this at the school dance which is kind of like the whole point that i'm (laughs) the whole reason i'm doing this (laughs) is that uh the main character would do the first rap rock performance in history like she'd get up on stage be like (laughs) all right here's something for you and off stage, you know, would be kind of the band leader on the phone saying, hey, Steven, this is your cousin, Jerry, Jerry Tyler. You know that new sound you're looking for? <laughs> Ooh. Oh, and of course, the time machine would be built inside a Pontiac Aztec because that's like the weirdest looking modern car I can think. <laughs> and of course, this is going to be called Black to the Future. Oh. Wow. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, that's great. <laughs> I have a, a just bonus idea that I didn't really flesh out as a pitch and then my actual pitch. So the bonus idea is let's see the movie version of A Match Made in Space. <laughs> I thought of that too. I would love to see that. I would love to see like like the sci-fi, how George remembers this <laughs> right. first movie. <laughs> yep. Um, awesome. But ultimately what I went with was um, more of the Doc-Marty relationship. Um, I really enjoy the friendship aspect of it and the idea of, you know, how people impact your lives was really speaking to me this time too. So, you know, what happens between 1955 and 1985? We haven't really explored that. And, um, Cam, from what you were saying earlier, I feel, I find it so interesting that people have such, can interpret the time travel and how these worlds are kind of coexisting in different ways. Cause I was always like, oh, I've always seen it as there's two potential versions or timelines, you know, after the events in the movie. So you've got your original timeline where, Marty didn't travel back in time because he wasn't born yet. And then once it happens, now we have this potential other version of, you know, Doc knowing and anticipating the whole time. Um, So I'm also curious about how then Doc would, you know, evolve the time machine from the flux capacitor, you know, so what happens during all that period of invention and, and how does he meet and why, you know, is Marty uh, built this relationship with this, you know, kooky old scientist. Like there, there is, you know, uh, I think a, the nugget of their friendship is not necessarily fully explored as to how that first came about. So I would tell the story alternating between scenes where it's before Doc meets Marty. So we're seeing some of the science build up, and then post meeting Marty. So you're seeing more of their relationship uh, without giving any clue as to which version of the timeline we're in like the original where he doesn't know or the other one where he does know so all you're you're seeing these and you're not sure which version it is and it all coalesces like in the middle at the last scene being doc 
meeting Marty for the first time. And then that's where the audience gets a clue somehow as to which interpretation this is. And so the working title is Back and Forth to the Future. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's nice. I like that a lot. I like, like, to explore another dimension, you know, of the time travel question that seems very much in keeping with the the franchise and what it, what it tried to do. I feel like that would be very much Zemeckis and Gale approved. That is high praise, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Well, out of all these three, it's certainly not going to be mine. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, there you go, guys. Hollywood. I know, I know you're not allowed yet, but just in case, you know, keep it in a drawer for the future. Those are some ideas. And instead of a check, um, why don't you just get us a tab? Or <laughs> if not, you know, just give us a Pepsi free. <laughs> well, we've come to that moment in our show where we ask the one question that we ask in almost all of our episodes. And that is, of course, what were we watching? I was watching a perfectly structured work of genius. One of the most, if not the most, tightly constructed, self-contained movies ever made. Full of heart, full of humor, and full of infinite imagination. It's just one of the best things ever made. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) This old thing. Yeah, very, very much similar vein. It's a perfectly calibrated comedy. And, like, it's a movie that literally transports me to another place and often another time because it's just more, it's more than a movie to me. It's, it's a way of relating to people and some of the people that are closest to me in my life. So it's something magical and something more than a movie. And I was watching uh, an action comedy about the core questions of time travel that ends up discovering the real key to our lives, which is how a moment, a singular moment in time can impact your future. But it's truly the amalgamation of all the little moments and the influence of the people we spend those moments with that end up shaping our lives and shaping ourselves. Well said. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> As Huey Lewis would call it. That's the power of love. <laughs> um, I couldn't have said it better myself, Amy. That is very true. And I'm glad we're all in agreement. It would be really awkward if some person was just like, yeah, it's, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, I like it. 88 miles an hour. I get it. <laughs> Butthead. We don't we don't associate with those people for they are buttheads. Yeah. <laughs> but Amy, you are the opposite of a butthead. You are a brain butt. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was trying to figure out <laughs> face butt? Face? I, I don't know. Brain face. <laughs> because the brain is the opposite of your head. Um <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't matter where I'm going with this because all I want to say really is to thank you for joining us. And uh, I'm so glad we could get you back on for this movie, which, you know, has been written in the stars even before podcasts were invented, I feel. 
we were <laughs> we've this movie has been such a part of our lives together that it's a real treat to kind of go in and do a deep dive with you so thank you very much for being here thank you for having me it was um it was such a pleasure to uh you know explore this movie more with you guys and to hear your takes on it and Yes, I really appreciate being the chosen guest for this movie because I'm sure that you had many, many uh, offers of wanting to discuss this this film. Um, but it means a lot to me, the movie itself, and the chance to talk about it with you guys. Well, we are happy to have you. And um, if, if people, you know... Uh, have their own thoughts and I'm sure they do, uh, about this film. They can, they can email us, uh, what were we watching at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you think about this episode and about this movie. Like, you know, other things we didn't cover, uh, or just your, your own theories and thoughts about the time travel conundrums. In addition, you know, you can visit our website, uh, what were we watching.com. Uh, or our Bandcamp page for a lot of our older episodes and check out more discussions, including our discussion about Mrs. Doubtfire, which Amy is also <laughs> on. Another good one. And, uh, on social media, if you look for us, uh, what were we watching on Instagram and Facebook and W4 podcast on Twitter, other ways to interact. And Amy, is there any plug that you'd like to make? No, I guess not. I mean, last time I just feel like I plugged local libraries. <laughs> That's always a good plug. <laughs> Support your local libraries. All right, friends. Um, this was a blast, but. Oh, one other thing. One other thing. Eric, if you ever have kids and one of them, when he's eight years old, accidentally sets fire to the living room rug, go easy on him. Okay. Cameron, what a nice name. (laughs) (laughs) This has been a lot of fun. Uh, So much fun. I thank you both again for being with us. And I thank all the listeners for listening. For Amy Ambler and Cam Seamer, I'm Eric Ambler. You've listened to What Were We Watching? And until next time. Since you're new here, uh, I'm going to cut you a break today. So why don't you make like a tree... And get out of here.